Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolff. In today's program, we're surveying quite a few different topics, a recession in Germany, a wholesale drug dealer's really funding the whole opioid crisis or a large portion of it, the role of immigrants in the American labor force, and how oil and gas companies are spending their money, which tells us a lot. And that's just the first half. In the second half, we'll be devoting ourselves to two big topics, basic facts and figures about the Chinese economy to cut through all the propaganda pro and con that is filling the airways. And finally, a little lesson in Marxian economics to show you how Marx and those folks understand where profit comes from and who is to be credited with producing it. So let's jump right in. Germany is the powerhouse economy of Europe. It is crucial to Western Europe the way the United States is crucial to the northern part of the Western Hemisphere. So a recession in Germany is very, very important for all of Europe and for the position of Europe in the world economy. The economy in Germany has shrunk over the last two quarters, that is, over the last six months, by half of 1% in the first three months or the last three months of last year, and by minus 0.3% in the first three months of this year. This drags down the European Union. It means the economic situation of Europe is in trouble at a time when it is caught between the two most powerful economic units in the world, the United States on the one hand and the People's Republic of China on the other. Europe depends on both of them, and that's a real problem. What is it that made the German economy for many years, the powerhouse driving the European economy upward, why is it now a drag on the European economy? The answer is overwhelmingly clear. It has to do with the sanctions war against Russia over the Ukraine war situation. By not anymore buying oil and gas, by punishing and threatening Russia in all manner of ways, economically, the end result has been that Germany cannot get any longer the cheap oil and gas that allowed Germany to have lower energy expenses than any other country in Europe, giving them the enormous advantage that allowed them to grow. Once you have these sanctions against Russia, and once as a result Russia stopped shipping oil and gas to Germany in the quantities and at the low prices it once did, Germany was caught. The cost of energy has gone crazy in Germany, doubling, tripling. It has made the cost of everything produced in Germany much higher because the producers have to pay more for the energy that runs their factories, their offices, and their stores. Therefore, their economy has shrunk because people in the rest of the world aren't buying German exports the way they once did. They're finding cheaper exports, you guessed it, from China and to some degree from the United States. 
Ironically, the Germans are increasingly importing liquefied natural gas from the United States, which is very expensive compared to the cheap oil and gas they got from Russia before. The inflation rate in Germany right now, for example, 7.2%. That's 50% higher than what it is here in the United States. Germany cannot compete if its prices are pricing it out of the market. It is therefore a kind of powerful tension inside Germany. You don't hear about it much, but if you communicate with German analysts, German economists, and German business specialists, as I do, you would know that there's an enormous debate going on right below the surface in which the capitalist class of Germany is angry with the political leadership that they normally work closely together with. The capitalists want the cheap energy from Russia. The politicians feel they have to knuckle under to the United States in the war against Russia, the economic war. That's building a tension inside German politics that I'm very confident we're going to hear about in the near future. Because in the struggle between the capitalists of Germany and the government, most folks who pay attention put the bet on the capitalists. My second update has to do with a Louisiana drug wholesaler, Morris and Dixon by name. Been around a long time. They were recently found to have shipped 12,000 suspiciously large orders of opioids. You know, those are those drugs that are killing huge numbers of Americans and have been for years. The Drug Enforcement Administration has ordered them to show cause why their license shouldn't be suspended. And there are now going to be 90 days of negotiations. But that's the point I want to talk about. Six years ago, a judge specifically singled out Morris and Dixon for doing what they've obviously been doing for many, many years. Six years ago, still nothing has been done. And even now, as the DEA comes in, it's going to be 90 days of negotiating. You know what that's called? Regulatory capture. That's when capitalist industry is regulated by an agency which the industry captures, making the regulations a theatrical game and not a serious control. It happens all the time. It's capitalism as it normally works. And here's a case where it proves deadly when the issue is producing and distributing opioids. I want to turn next to an issue that's very hot in the United States, but could use a little bit of factual clarity. 18.1% of the workforce in the United States right now is comprised of people who were not born in the United States. In other words, a little less than one in five American workers today were born in another country. In 1996, almost 30 years ago, the same percentage was 11%, roughly 1 in 10. Why do I tell you this? Because over the last 30 years, with Republicans and Democrats changing seats as to who's in power in the Congress and the presidency, hasn't made a whole lot of difference. The immigration has gone up. Why? Answer. There's a labor shortage in the United States. There's been one for quite a while. The native population, for a whole host of reasons, is not growing. 
We are not getting married the way we once did. We are not having children the way we once did. And the result is the economy is trying to grow without a growing labor force. What has this meant is that corporations are worried. They need a future supply of cheap labor because that's what capitalism is about. All right. They've taken some steps. For example, Social Security is not enough for most older people, so they have to stay in the labor force and become, I don't know, greeters at Walmart and jobs like that. That's getting the labor force up by making older people come back into it. We've also seen a growing reliance on teens. There's a dozen states changing their laws to allow effectively children, teenage children, to do work and to change the laws that once protected our teenage children from being exploited in the workplace as they are now revealed to be particularly immigrant children. Well, even with the child and even with the elderly, we weren't producing enough workers for the capitalist class, the employer class in this country. And so we've turned to immigration. This, of course, allowed white supremacists, MAGA Republicans, and others to come upon an issue that they thought they could get votes on. Demonizing the immigrant, making the immigrant the bad guy, even though most of the immigrants are poor people fleeing from bad economic and political conditions to come to the United States, as has been the history of the United States from its beginnings. But there was a political gain to be gotten by scapegoating immigrants, and of course, we've always had those right-wingers eager to do that. But you know, the way capitalism works, if the anger of people against immigrants, revved up by all sorts of people like the white supremacists, like the extreme conservatives, if that actually becomes powerful enough to stop immigration, the capitalists always have fallback positions. They're pushing child labor now. If you can't get an immigrant, get a child. They're pushing the elderly to go back into the workforce. But they also have the two other main weapons they have if there's not enough workers. Number one, automation. Replace the workers with machines. They're planning on doing that big time with computers, with robots, and now with artificial intelligence. And that's the future if we allow it to play out that way. And if they can't bring in immigrants and save money on labor that way, they will go out, as we know they've done over the last 30 years, to China, to India, to Brazil, to wherever it is that they can find cheap labor. So the immigration struggle is one that is an irritation for the capitalists, but not one that they haven't developed a defense for. They're going to pay a little bit in order to profit a lot, and whatever they do will take into account social conditions, but not to question the basic profit-driven nature of this system. Speaking of which, and the last of our updates before we take our mid-program break, oil and gas companies are behaving in a new way. Over most of the last 10 years, they poured the bulk of their profits into exploration and production, producing ever more. 
disregarding all the climate science, disregarding all of the environmental damage, they went ahead to produce the moneymaker. But now, between the storms and the fires and the droughts and the rising sea levels and all the other crises that the climate is imposing on us, they've changed their style. Over the last year, they only took about half of their profits to explore and produce more. Most of the rest of it went to buy back shares of stock in the uh, stock market, driving up the price of stock, which is wonderful for the 10% of people who own most of those stocks. And they also paid out more dividends to the owners of those stocks. Great for the richest people amongst us. Here's what they didn't do. They didn't take the money no longer being spent for exploration and production and move it into alternative energy sources. No, 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 no. They're spending less than 3% of their profits on any of those things, far less than what the Paris Accords said was necessary. You know what they're doing? They're playing clever investment strategy. They're producing less growth in oil and gas because they can see the handwriting on the wall. But by producing much less, they hope to drive up the price because they're certainly not increasing the supply of non-fossil fuels. They're not helping to develop the alternatives. So there won't be enough of the alternatives. That'll make the oil and gas scarce, and they can charge more. That's what's going on here. It is a double mockery of all of us who have said, save the earth, save the climate. It ignores all of that in order to make the oil and gas we will still be having to use more expensive than it might otherwise have been. We've come to the end of the first half of today's economic update. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with the second half talking about China's economic situation and about how Marxists explain the origin and source of profits. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. In this second half, I want to devote myself half to questions about China and the other half to questions about profit and what the Marxian theory is that explains what profit is. Let's first talk about China. And here what I'm aiming at is two things. Number one, to update you on important statistics about the United States' relationship to China and vice versa. But the second reason I'm doing this is we are now in a kind of economic war, as I'm sure you know, a war with Russia in Ukraine and a war with Russia's ally China in the broad economic sense. And so far, the United States is not directly militarily engaged. Instead, it is providing guns, planes, bombs, missiles to Ukraine to shoot against the Russians in that war. And you know, as a famous journalist once said, in every war, the first casualty is the truth. And what that journalist was saying was when, when you're at having this kind of conflict, military or economic war, telling the truth becomes riskier and rarer, and making things up becomes the norm. 
That's going on now with the United States and China, has been for quite a while. And that means I have a task, which is to give you real facts as best we know them about China and the United States. I'm not advocating the Chinese form of government. Both of the China and the United States have many social problems they need to address and do better at. That's not my goal here. My goal here is to make sure that as you think about the United States and China, you understand the actuality of what's going on rather than listening to one or the other bloated nonsense that constitutes official propaganda. All right. First, China is the main economic competitor of the United States. No other country comes close. That has to be understood. And one way to understand it is to let me give you the updated, most recent numbers for the total output of goods and services in China, the GDP of China, gross domestic product of China, and compare it to that of the United States. For the most recent period, the GDP of the United States is $22 trillion. The GDP of the People's Republic of China, $18.1 trillion. That's pretty close. And it's getting closer literally every time. For example, the growth rate of GDP in the first quarter of 2023, we just finished that, the January, February, March of this year. We now have those numbers. The rate of growth of the GDP in China, 4.5%. Low for what China usually gets, but compared to the United States, which came in with a 1.3% growth. That's why the gap, already the smallest one between the United States and other countries, why that gap with China is getting smaller quickly. The United States has a group of allies, economically speaking, mostly Western Europe, plus Japan and Canada. Together, they are called the G7. Okay? Total percentage of the world product accounted for by the G7. 29.8%. 29.8% of the world's output is accomplished in those G7 countries. What about China and its allies, known as the BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, standing for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa? The BRICS account for, yeah, 33% of the world's output. In other words, in terms of the economic footprint of the BRICS relative to the G7, the United States is now a second-place finisher and it is slipping pretty fast. That's the reality of the global economy. It means for the, all the countries of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, the BRICS is a bigger market, a bigger economic possibility, a better economic future than hooking themselves up to the G7. You're seeing that already around the world. Now you understand the economic basis for it. The inflation rate in the United States is currently about 
The inflation rate in the People's Republic of China right now is, get ready, 0.7%, not even 1%. That means Chinese goods are not rising in price anywhere near as fast as the United States' prices are going up, which means people around the world, including Americans, will be shifting toward Chinese-produced goods and away from American-produced goods for the simple reason that the Chinese goods are not as expensive. This is also shaping world trade. Next item. The Chinese just started commercial flights on their own airliner, the C-919 airplane. It is a direct competitor to both the Boeing Corporation, which makes airplanes here in the United States, and Airbus, which is the European competitor. The world used to be divided between Boeing and Airbus, between the United States and Western Europe. Now there is a new competitor on the block. And guess what? It's China. It's another straw in the wind. China has economic growth, successful and better and faster than anywhere else. And this, the reason is not far to find. China broke away from the Soviet Union model and from the United States. In the Soviet Union, the government owned and operated industry. In the United States, mostly private individuals own and operate industry. China is a hybrid. China has a large government-owned and operated sector side-by-side side with a large private-owned and operated sector, partly private Chinese citizens, partly American, Japanese, Western European, and so on citizens. China broke away from the other two and created a hybrid supervised and controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. This recipe political control, and a hybrid public-private has proven to be the fastest-growing kind of economic structure that a capitalist world has so far seen. Those are the facts. Do with them what you will. But don't be misled by silly propaganda telling you dream fantasies about one country that are wonderful and dream fantasies about another that are horrible. That's not the way the world is, and you don't get anywhere by pretending otherwise. Now I want to answer a question that many of you have asked me, and that many people wonder about. What exactly is profit? Where does it come from? How is it possible that many people, we call them shareholders, get a piece of the revenue that a company earns by producing and selling goods? even though those people do not participate in producing anything. How is this possible? Where does profit, which is what's given to people who are shareholders in the form of dividends and so on, how, how does that come about? And here's the Marxian answer. It's an interesting story Marxism has to tell, and I think you'll find it a useful way of understanding the profit. And remember, the profit is why most of you have a job. Somebody is profiting off your job. That's why you have it. And you knew that. But now you're going to understand it in a particularly clear way 
because that's one of the insights Marxism offers. Here we go. Think of every production of any company you can imagine pretty much in the following way. You start off with some tools, equipment, a building, raw materials, all the things you work with and the things you work on. I'm going to use the example of a ladder factory. So it needs wood and glue and saws and hammers and nails and all that kind of stuff and a workshop area to make ladders. Let's say it costs a hundred bucks to buy all of that stuff to make the ladder. Now we add a crucial ingredient, living human labor, the workers who come into the workshop, who pick up the tools and equipment, and who transform, using their brains and muscles, the raw materials, the wood, the glue, and all the rest. And out at the other end of the production process emerges the ladder, a nice wooden ladder, six steps, that can be sold in the market. And let's say, just to make this really simple, that the workers, by their labor, add value. It's what's called value-added. The workers take $100 worth of tools, equipment, and raw materials, work them up into ladders by adding value, the, the value of the ladders, let's call it another 100 on top of the 100 of the tools and equipment used up. So the value of the ladders, 200. 100 of the tools, equipment, and raw material used up, plus 100 value added by the workers' labor, by them using their brains and muscles to make something called a ladder. Now, the capitalist, the employer who hired those workers, who bought the tools, equipment, and raw materials, he sells the product, the ladders, for 200. That's what they're worth. Now, what does he do? He takes 100 of the 200 he gets from selling the ladders and replaces the tools, equipment, and raw materials that were used up. He has to do that, otherwise he can't continue to be an employer and to play in the capitalist game. So, all right, that leaves him with 100 left. He's taken 100 out of the 200 of ladders he sold, used them to replace the tools, equipment, and raw materials, leaving him with 100. All right, now we get to the good part. He takes 50 out of that 100 and pays the workers. That's their wage. That's their salary. And what does he do with the remaining 50? He keeps them. It's the capitalist's profit. It's that extra that the capitalist gets. You see, he only laid out 100 for the tools, equipment, and raw materials, and he laid out 50 for the workers. But he sold the ladders for 200. He gets the other 50. And I'm going to tell you the same story now in a very personal way to mimic an experience you've probably had. Imagine you're going for a job, you're talking to the prospective employer, and you, he tells you what it is you have to do. And you come to that point in the conversation when the issue is, how much am I going to get paid? And the employer says, we're ready to pay you $20 an hour, let's assume. And you say, okay, here's what you know, even though you never learned the Marxian theory, you know that that employer wouldn't be giving you $20 for every hour you work unless your hour's work produced for that employer more than $20 worth of extra stuff to sell. Because if your hour 
that he pays you $20 for. Only added $20 to the value of what he sold, there'd be nothing in it for him, and he wouldn't do it. He only hires you if it's profitable. Translation. He only hires you if the value added in and by your labor is greater than the value paid to you for doing that labor. When Marx talks about exploitation, that's what he means, that the very normal system involves workers producing more than they get. And that's why the employer is always trying to push down what you get, because it's more for him. I hope you've enjoyed this program, the way it was structured. I'm glad to present these to you. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.